This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. This week's show full of news you can use. Look, the number one story in America right now, and it's not even close, politically, economically, culturally, attitudinally, is inflation. And it's not close. And we've talked about it with a few of our guests who are in public policy arenas before. But this week, we're going to talk about it and the state of the U.S. economy, what to think about it. And if you're an investor, some of you might be, what you might think about. We don't we don't dispense investment advice here. We never would try. But some ideas you might want to consider. That's as far as I'll go down that road. And we're going to do all of that, all of what I've just described with one of my closest and best friends at CBS, a great colleague, Jill Schlesinger, our CBS News business analyst. Jill, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be with you. And I want to be clear. I will actually dispense investment advice because I'm still a certified financial planner. Okay. So I'm happy to do that. <laughs> okay, good. You, it just won't come from me, ladies and Absolutely. gentlemen. Because that's just too dangerous for your uh, dim-witted uh, but ever-enthusiastic host. <laughs> All right. So, Jill, um, help the audience understand just a couple of basic things. As you know, on the show, we love to break down terminology that everyone assumes everyone knows, but they might not know. So they hear things like inflation, and then they hear on television, or they might read online, core inflation. Or they might hear something about this week, the producer price indexed. Help my audience understand, as you do on your own shows, Jill on Money and I on Money, what the terms are, which are the, which one is the most important, and which one you can sort of take to your mental bank. <laughs> well, first of all, the, you know, there's always a slew of economic reports that come out all the time, and you know, for as long as I have been in the either the money management business, a trader, and now working at CBS, you know, it was such a funny thing to talk about inflation because the way we used to talk about inflation was, oh my gosh, it's too low. In fact, I remember there was a time when. Ben Bernanke was a guest on our morning show, and I was asking him, like, what are we going to do to get prices rising faster? That was our big problem. And uh, so it's just crazy how the world has turned around. So a few different ways to measure inflation, which is just the rate of increase of a bunch of goods and services in the U.S. economy. And uh, the big broad one is called the Consumer Price Index. 
and it's broken up into lots of different categories. But, you know, in the past, the problem has been when there has been a dislocation in one of the big commodities markets, like a food market, like it was wheat or oil, it would move the numbers around so much that the government has had started to say, well, wait a minute, those are such volatile categories. Maybe we get a better measure of what's really going on by focusing on the rate of price increases for everything but those super volatile parts of the analysis. So the core, whenever we hear core, it just means you've stripped out food and energy because that way the, the, it wouldn't be so noisy. Now, if you're a normal human being, this is right. what you would think. <laughs> Let me just say that at this moment, you'd be like, right. duh, Jill. But really, why would I strip out the things right. that matter the most to me? Right. That I buy all the time and have to buy all the In, time. Ab- absolutely. So, again, one of the reasons is that those categories move around much more dramatically. And it doesn't mean that we don't focus on those items. It just means they're sort of treated slightly differently. And part of the reason is probably what we're going to see over the course of the next couple of months. For example, last month, oil prices shot higher. And because the biggest portion of the price of a gallon of gasoline is derived from crude oil, prices at the pumps jumped. And so they went up and they soared. I think on June 14th, we reached a peak of over five bucks a barrel nationally. And now oil's reverse course and has gone down. So we've gone to near 120 bucks a barrel. Now we're at $90 a barrel. And that's going to impact the price of the pump. And that's good. You know, prices are down. Great. But in order to get a real feel on what's going on inside the economy, pulling those numbers out is actually helpful for the federal government, most importantly, Federal Reserve. So inflation, consumer price index at the consumer level. Producer price index is the price that producers or manufacturers have to pay. We care a little bit less about that. I mean, you care about that as an investor, because if producers are paying a lot of money for stuff, but they're not charging us, the consumer, as much, it usually means they're not going to make as much money. So their profitability or their margin will be reduced. All right. Now, take a deep breath, everyone. All right. Prices are higher. That's your big deal. Okay. We know that prices are higher. And I think the bigger question is, how quickly are prices going to actually come down if the Fed is starting to raise interest rates? And the answer is, we don't know. Right. And to that point about a likelihood of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates yet again, there is a meeting coming up later this month in the month of July. There is now a conversation I see on the various financial networks and online. The Federal Reserve was considering 0.75. It could be a full point interest rate because of these latest inflation numbers. Could it be higher? And what are the implications of anything in that range? 0.75 to one or maybe higher? It will not be higher. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say it it will not go higher. I'm not sure it's going to be one. I I am. I feel that 0.75 is the most likely scenario. Um, Okay. The Federal Reserve. Let's peel this back a second. Right. The nation's central bank. Uh, What's their job? They got three big, huge jobs. One job is to try to make sure that the economy is growing enough to create a job for anyone who really wants one. That's one part of their job. The other part of their job is what's called price stability. Prices aren't too low, deflation, or they're not too high, inflation. 
And the third part of their job is supervisory or regulatory. But if we look at those first two pieces, that's a pretty delicate balancing act. So the Fed is trying to use its tools to control how fast the economy grows. And that influences us as consumers, as businesses. And they do that by changing interest rates, short-term interest rates. So they've raised, they started to raise short-term interest rates back in March. Then they did it again in May and June, and they're going to go again in July. And I think the most likely scenario is 0.75%. The biggest problem with the way the Fed tries to use its tools is that they're kind of blunt instruments. Right. And that means that as they raise interest rates, it will likely slow the economy down, but it may take a while for it to filter through the economy. And that means that we're kind of stuck with these higher prices longer than anyone's going to feel comfortable having them stick around. Jill, as you well know, there's been sort of a recrimination factory built to heap criticism on the Federal Reserve for missing the underlying economics and allowing inflation if you read the criticism, and I have, to sort of gallop away from the U.S. economy. Fair or unfair? Uh, I think both. Isn't that a nice little wedge there? <laughs> um, unfair early on, okay? Look, first of all, the Federal Reserve is people. It is human beings. And uh, I would like to, like, I did this during the financial crisis, and I got killed by people when I said this. They're human beings doing the best, doing the best they can in a very chaotic time. And so when we think about what was going on in COVID, the Federal Reserve was trying to look at the toolbox it had used it during the financial great financial crisis and the Great Recession. Look at what worked, look at what didn't work and try not to repeat some of the mistakes of 2008, 9 and 10. All right. And what they really were doing was they dropped interest rates very quickly. And at the same time, the one big difference was Back in 2008, 2009, you know where all the money went? It went to shore up the banks. Not a lot Correct. went to individuals. And I think the, the administrations, both the Trump and the Biden administrations, were clear. We're not making that mistake again because people paid a huge price. And so they flooded this, the, the end zone with a lot of money, stimulus. And at the same time, the Fed was dropping rates down. So I think that that was all done with the best intentions. Now, what I think the problem is that about a year ago, we started to so see. Jill, let me let me jump in because yep. I want because you're about to do the critical side of the Fed and its performance. And I want to make sure you have adequate time to do that. I'm right up against a break. Jill Schlesinger is our special guest. Her shows Jill on Money, I on Money. Back for the criticism of the Fed in segment two of The Takeout in just one second. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Inflation, overall direction of the U.S. economy, our one and only focus this week with CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Her shows, Jill on Money, I on Money. So, Jill, you were about to say there's another part of the Federal Reserve story 
a critical component of its performance. Please proceed. So about a year ago, maybe last spring of 2021, remember we were opening up and there was still some uncertainty, but there were um, a few early birds who said, wow, these prices are staying high and it's not just COVID related. It's not going away all too soon. And the, the head cheerleader from that camp was Larry Summers, the former treasury secretary. And he was pretty spot on. I mean, he said, there's so much money going into the economy. Interest rates are so low. People are spending money in weird ways they haven't spent. There's a bottleneck on the good side. We have to start raising interest rates right now. And he was very early in that. And I think that a lot of economists I spoke to were like, yeah, let's see how the summer goes. And then we got to the fall. And then the fall, everyone was like, OK, Fed, time to change policy. And that was the moment I think the Fed had an opportunity to kind of get in front of this, but they did not. And again, human beings, uh, we are wildly influenced by cognitive biases. Same at the Federal Reserve. Their cognitive bias is something called recency bias. The thing that happened most recently impacts the way you're going to proceed today. And their most recent playbook was 2008-2009, where they were wildly criticized for actually starting to raise interest rates too quickly in that nascent recovery. And they didn't want to make that mistake again. And frankly, they waited too long, probably by six months. And that allowed inflation to bubble in and get baked in a little bit. You know, the big issue around inflation is not just high prices. It's our expectations of what those high prices will mean in the future. Exactly. And that's where I want to go to next, because I am, for the purposes of this show and my own life, a man of a certain age. Let me be specific. I'll be 60 next month. <gasps> what that means for the for the purpose of this conversation is I remember the 70s. I was alive. I watched my parents deal with inflation. I went to the supermarket with my mother every other week when we bought the family supply of groceries. And Jill, as I'm sure you can remember or you've read about because you're much younger than I am. <laughs> Canned goods would have these little stickers on the top of them, five or six layers deep. And the stickers were the new price applied by the clerks at the grocery stores. And that's how rapidly prices were going up. They needed a new sticker every three or four days. And you'd buy a canned good, like a can of peas or something, and there'd be like, I'm not kidding you folks, I remember it. Six or seven stickers indicating a higher price within the course of a week or a month. And that inflationary reality got baked into a whole set of expectations. And that's what made it, as I've read the history, persist. When people begin to make decisions on hiring, firing, changing jobs, shifting jobs, all sorts of things, if they believe they're living in a perpetually inflationary economy, they change their behavior. Are we there yet? Uh, I don't think so, but we're starting to get nervous about that for sure. Um, and those inflationary expectations are actually um, used by the Federal Reserve because they look at short, intermediate and long term expectations. And by the way, I totally remember that my mother was friends with a guy who owned the gas station in our town. And so when she had to fill up our Buick Electra, go look that one up, kids. That is a long <laughs> car um, that we went at 930 at night and like snuck around the back. So I totally remember it. But it's interesting that you point that out about experience, because 
you know, we have a generation of people, think about this, anyone who is basically 45 years or younger has no experience with inflation. And so, uh, you know, the old farts like us, we do remember it and we kind of know how to term, ladies and gentlemen, exactly, you know, but like we understand what it means. We also understand it's not forever. You know, and I think the lesson of the 70s was that there was a prescriptive way to deal with inflation. It's painful and it will be painful now, but it will we will come to the other side of it. It's going to be interesting to see how a generation of people that has been living in a low inflationary environment uh, starts to take in this information and get to the other side of it. Are they going to be the kind of people who say, oh my gosh, well, now I'll never be able to retire. Forget about the fire movement. Forget about financial independence, retire early. I'm working forever because who knows where prices are going to be. So those expectations are um, are certainly being used by a lot of companies right now. Hey, it's not so much about inflation. It's about the prescription to fix inflation, higher interest rates, along with change in consumer and business spending, a pulling back, a retrenchment, those two things argue for a big slowdown in economic growth. U.S. economy grew by five and a half percent last year, and we are going down from that. Whether we go negative, whether we have a contraction, whether it's long, whether it's steep, whether it's short, we don't know. We're slowing down and people are already changing their expectations and their plans as a result. Since we talked about the 70s, I should probably let the audience know 1980 was the year in which all of these were these bad numbers sort of converged. And let me give you some perspective on what that convergence actually looked like in the year 1980. Inflation was 14 percent in 1980. It is currently 9 percent over the most recent 12 months. Interest rates were 11 percent in 1980. They are currently running at 5.1 to 5.3, depending on your lender. Unemployment in 1980 was 7.2% nationally. It is currently 3.4%. I'm not trying to tell you to not be unhappy or alarmed by the current economic statistics. I'm just saying they were worse at a different point in American history, and they were worse across more parts of our economy. Interest rates much higher, inflation higher, and importantly, unemployment much higher. So, Jill, what I want to ask you about now is what are we to think about a labor market that is not only with low unemployment, 3.4%, but if I have the numbers correctly, there are 11 million job openings. Yeah, I think the labor market is really curious right now. By the way, in 1980, I just looked it up. Number one song, Call Me by Blondie. And then number two, Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. I just want a little more context for everybody. It was a very strange musical time. Okay, it really was. So uh, when you look at the labor market, here's here's what we know. Uh, Job growth has really been strong this year, and it continues to be pretty good. We're downshifting, though. So we've had 2.74 million new jobs in the first six months of this year. We started out with about a half a million jobs a month for the first three months, then about 380,000 jobs a month for the next three months. So you see that already the trend is going lower. You're right. The unemployment rate, 3.6%. It's a tick above a 50-year low. So very, very strong labor market. But here's the curious head scratcher. If prices are up, and everyone's complaining about it, and we all are, let's be honest, 
Why aren't more people getting back into the labor market while there are 11.3 million job openings? What's going on? A couple of theories. One, uh, people are fried. Okay, so you have the a slew of teachers, of healthcare workers, of frontline workers who just absolutely gave it their all for the last couple of years, and they are exhausted and they've left the labor force. Another idea. Well, a lot of people were finding that they couldn't get childcare amid the pandemic. And one of the parents stayed home because the childcare issue was really problematic. Maybe they figured out they can make it on one income, shockingly. And then there are a number of people who left the labor force, maybe go dipping in and out, changing jobs, making money, trying to figure out how to live their best lives. But you know what? They don't know where they're going next. So I think the labor market is one that suggests that it's strong enough right this second that the Fed has to keep going because they've got a lot of leeway there. There's a lot of slack in the labor market. And that raises a question that I want you to pursue with us, Jill, on the other side of this break in segment three, which is, are we entering a fundamentally different economic reality? Because Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has said we may be in this post-pandemic world in a very new kind of economy, mm-hmm. one that isn't understandable or as as understandable to us as previous economies were. The stats and the likely trajectories of things may not lay out the way they have in the past. We want to take that co- that conversation on on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger is our special guest. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Thank you for finding this show in whichever way you find it. Of course, there are many varieties of ways to find this show. Great radio stations around our country, at least 70 at the last count. CBS News Streaming, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, and of course, our most beloved and cherished earliest adopters on all podcast platforms. Thanks for hanging out with us. And for those watching on CBS News Streaming, I'm coming to you from my office, third floor, CBS News Bureau here in downtown Washington, D.C. The last segment, if you were watching really closely, we had a microphone malfunction. There's a microphone here. It got caught up in my leg. I kicked it (laughs) off. I put it back on. And we have all audio issues firmly and I hope permanently for the sake of this broadcast resolved. Jill Schlesinger is our special guest. Her shows also podcast and on radio. Jill on money, I on money. Jill, we set up our previous segment. We went out of it setting this one up with a question. Are we in a different economic place post-pandemic and has the pandemic shifted things in the foundations of our economy in ways that are likely to last? Well, it's definitely lasting. Um, I don't know if it's going to last two years, five years, or is this going to be a non-event? I'm always a little bit worried and um, 
cautious about saying this time is different because there are I mean, except that it was a once in a century pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, like if you could look at the financial crisis, it wasn't different than a lot of other financial panics that we've had. It's just that we don't have a lot of those that happen in the United States in such a big way. Right. But a pandemic is different and it really did have a significant emotional impact on us. Right. And I think that that's the part that we don't know yet. We don't and know when you how talk about when you talk about fried workers. It's evidence in this bureau. It's evidence. I as I gather it anecdotally from everyone I talk to in business, how employees want to come back, whether they want to come back, the frequency at which they come back. All of these things are now live topics. They're real live jump balls in human resources in in allocation of corporate resources. They're conversations that simply did not exist before. And it sounds like they're staying around. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, I started hearing this uh, early on in the pandemic when I, I had a podcast that was twice a week. We were inundated with so many questions that we went to a daily podcast and the Jill on Money audience was so uh, informed, informed and informed me. Um, and, And what I took away with it was that people were really trying to rethink their lives. Now, here's the really cool thing. I used all that information and I sold a book on it. And the name of the book is kind of and it will be out in January of 23, but it's called The Great Money Reset. And the reason that I chose that title was that every single one of these decisions that people were trying to consider about their real lives had some financial impact. And you had to know the numbers before you could make the big decision. So when we talk about one person staying home, the other one not. When we talk about people saying, you know what? I am out of the daily news grind. I need to find a different path. When we talk about that people learn during that COVID crisis, I don't need that much. I may want it, but I don't need it. Now, the flip side of that is that of course, we're human beings and we're sort of hedonists also. So, you know, we were cooped up for two years and yeah, I may not have needed it, but I'm going to pay 35% more for an airline ticket because I have right. got to go away with my family. So we are living history. The, the We don't know what whether these things will be long lasting. And I would say that if any this, if anything is like the big message to me from the pandemic, it's that when we have to batten down the hatches, we can. But we don't really like to do that. And that's what we're learning on the flip side of it. Right. Talk to my audience about something I'm sure you talk about to your audience on your show. Wages. Wages have gone up, but they have not kept pace with inflation. Why is that? And how big is the gap? And is that something that is alarming to economists? Well, actually, it's a weird double-edged sword. If wages rise dramatically and keep pace with inflation... We're kind of screwed because more inflation. Exactly. So as of June, wages were up by 5.1 percent from a year ago. We just got the June inflation report and we know prices were up by 9.1 percent. What is filling that gap? Well, what's filling that gap is people are spending down some of the savings that they had. Something miraculous happened during covid. People did not spend money and they were getting stimulus checks and unemployment checks and enhanced child tax credits. And we had excess savings in the United States of about two and a half trillion dollars. By some estimates, 
we've spent down about 600 billion of that two and a half trillion. That's how we've been paying for the difference between our wage increases and the inflation rate. Now, if wages, I think that wage growth is going to probably is already started to moderate. In fact, this whole idea of like the great resignation, probably not a great resignation, probably a little reshuffling here and there, certain sectors doing better than others. But it, it is telling us that the wage story is not everything. You know, you can go and ask your boss for a raise. That's fine. But a lot of people coming out of the pandemic said, I don't need dollars. I need flexibility. I don't need dollars. I want more. Uh, I want a better health plan. I don't need dollars, but I sure would like those stock options that you have. So there are different motivators for different people. One thing I also want to talk to you about in that conversation about stimulus, it also it strikes me there was indirect stimulus, meaning things that were owed were delayed. If you had a student loan, you are still in a place of you, you don't have to pay down interest or principal. For many renters in this country, there was eviction relief. And so indirectly, you were sheltered from some expenses you otherwise on a monthly basis would have to pay. That's all over. There are some who worry about the potential impact of that. What do you think? Well, I think that the story around the housing and rents is really interesting because the first thing I did when I you know, had the CPI report in front of me is I went to one line called Shelter. And Shelter was up 5.6%, does not get as nearly much attention as food and gas. Oh my God, eggs are up 20% or poultry, right? But shelter is really important because when you think about the cost of rent or the cost of just your housing, it's a huge portion of your income, of your take-home income. So if that's going up by 5.6%, what's happening? Well, it is true that rents went down in many metro areas for, let's call it 2020 to 2021. And now maybe rents are rising to make up for that. But there's something else going on because the acceleration in rents is not just a year over year thing. It's now happening every month. And that tells me that we have a very strange housing market right now. And that means that a lot of people who wanted to buy their first homes were able to do it during the pandemic. It's fantastic. That's great. But now first time home buyers are getting shut out of the market because prices are up by 20 percent. Mortgage rates have nearly doubled and they don't have the down payment that's necessary to actually outbid an all cash bidder. And that's usually someone who already owns a home. So the reality is the housing market's still in dislocation. It will be resetting. I think the rent story is actually a big, big part of the inflation story. And I think the student loan issue is going to be a very interesting one to watch. I, you know, I should ask you the scuttlebutt that I hear is that the administration is really looking hard at re- giving debt relief of up to $10,000 per borrower with a, some income test. Maybe it's 75, maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's 150 grand. So that's going to relieve a lot of people, but there are still going to be a lot of people who have their debts to repay. Overall, people are going to be sucking wind when it comes to this fall unless we see other prices start to come down. Yes, on that student debt, I believe it's the conversation that seemingly has no end within the Biden White House. There's tremendous pressure from a policy point of view, certainly from progressives in the party, and there's a political reality. It's a midterm election climate. They want to do something that is at least 
within their base, popular, the legal means by which to do it. Can the president do that with just his executive authority? That's one thing that the administration has struggled with relentlessly because they know legislatively it's not an option. Republicans are not going to let them do it and hand out that kind of money in a campaign year. All those things are hovering and have hovered around the student loan forgiveness conversation. In our next segment, segment four, right as we head to break, we're going to talk to Jill Schlesinger, our CBS News business analyst, about two things, the bear market and crypto winter. When we come back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Our special guest, Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, host of Jill on Money, Eye on Money. Jill, uh, we're in a bear market for sure. Uh, stock indexes down 15% globally, $9 trillion in equity lost this year, if I read the numbers correctly. And this is what we think about when we talk about bear markets historically. 70% of bear markets have led to recessions of one kind or another, one depth or magnitude of another. That's why it's topical. Um what is the you said you will uh, dispense investment advice i never will uh what is the climate and what would be your advice well first of all i um i'm going to just come out of the closet right now as okay. a lover of bear markets i think okay. they're great because i think they help reset expectations and i think that when things get a little too frothy that's when i get nervous i get nervous you know at the end of last year i got nervous when i heard from people who are like well i don't want to keep my emergency reserve in just a bank account I, i'm just going to put it in a you know a dividend producing stock uh no okay no so bear markets are good because they flush out excesses why are we thinking it's going to be a uh, a recessionary kind of theme here. Well, the reality is that when you buy a stock, when you buy a stock index fund, what are you doing? You're betting on a company's ability to produce earnings in the future. And if the economy slows down, companies may not make as much money. That's all that's happening right now. And so the things that went up the most during the COVID rally got shellacked and got the hardest hit earliest. That means technology stocks. The tech sector peaked in November. I think that's right. November of last year, the S&P 500 peaked in January, but everything's taken it on the chin. And when you're um, a big investor, oftentimes the best thing to do when you're fearful of a recession is you run for cover. So you sell stuff, you wait around, see what happens. However, you and I don't have to do that. Because we don't have to answer to people with quarterly reports. All we need to do is stick to our game plan. So what does that mean? Here's your investment advice. If you're putting money into your retirement account right now, even if you're going to retire in two years, it's a, maybe you've got a, a shorter time horizon. It doesn't have to be 30 or 40, but if it's two, five, six years, keep to your game plan. Because right now is where the rubber meets the road 
in investments. What and do I mean? Where bargains can be found. Absolutely. Look, we're talking about inflation, right? Inflation is at, we talked about, 40-year highs. What has not gone up? What has actually gone down? What is on sale right now? Stocks and bonds. And if you have the right mentality about this, you're going to look past a bear market. You're going to look past a recession. You're going to understand that if you don't need your money for 10, 20, 30 years, that you have an opportunity right now to build your nest egg. And that's the most important thing. It is quite contraindicated, frankly, because when the things that go down the most really start to freak you out, what do you want to do? You want to sell everything and you know hide with your money under the mattress. But what you really need to do is kind of drown out the noise, keep on keeping on. And I think five years from now, you'll be really happy you did. You talked about your uh, love for bear markets because they reset, they clarify, they wash away excesses. I want to talk to you about crypto winter. So I mentioned a moment ago that globally with 15% stock market indexes down, $9 trillion in value was lost. $2 trillion of that was in cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin, the most popular of the cryptocurrencies, down 70%. Tell my audience what the crypto winter is and what it might foretell. Do you remember... um Let's go back into the old fart dumb um, in the dot com boom. There was the Super Bowl of 2000. And at the Super Bowl of 2000, there was an advertisement that ran on the Super Bowl. I don't know if it was a CBS Super Bowl that year. Um, and it was pets.com. And I remember everybody marveling at ha- this beautiful thing like the Internet. It's going to change everything. And there were some people like me who were sort of worried, like, well, yeah, I mean, I get it that there's something cool happening, but no one's got earnings. There's no earnings for Pets.com. That's a problem, isn't it? And then I remember at this year's oh, stodgy perspective, I know, I know. And it's OK, like you can roll the dice and take a bet on a lot of flyers. There's no I mean, it, it's fine, but like you got to know what you're doing. So I think that when I saw all that crypto advertising in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. I literally said I didn't say crypto winter. I just said winter is coming, you know, <laughs> And from a uh, show we've all heard of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that what's interesting about crypto is that we talk ourselves into this idea that like, hey, these super smart venture capitalists who really did finance the Internet boom um, and they made fortunes of money are investing in this. I should do that, too. Maybe. But don't forget, there were a lot of losers in the Internet bust. And the Nasdaq went from, you know, 5000 to 2000. And it took about 12 years to get back to its previous high. So there's a lot of um, reshuffling. I think the biggest question you ask yourself if you're an investor in crypto is why am I holding this? Is it just a fun flyer? And it's like one percent of everything that I'm investing. That's fine. Go for it. But if you think you're building wealth, based on something that has no earnings and, as you said, has no central bank and really doesn't have a use case. Like, I'm not clear what the use case is for this, for all of the blockchain right now. It could, it will, it might be, there could be, 
But this idea of decentralized finance, great. Good luck when you lose your fob because there's no there's no there's nothing centralized where you can go figure out where your money is. Good luck if someone goes into your account and takes your Bitcoin or your whatever your your Dogecoin or whatever it is. There's no one to go to. So good luck. Right. And it's 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 scarcely regulated, I think, is the fairest way to describe it. True. <laughs> that's that's being generous. generous um, probably. It, yeah. Um, uh, I think that it looks like it's going to be regulated like a commodity. I mean, I think that that's probably right because I always thought, I mean, I was a silver trader. I was a gold, silver and copper options trader was my first job on Wall Street. And the way you look at charts of commodities is the way that I look at Bitcoin. Like, yes, there is supply and demand with Bitcoin because there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin, but um, it moves with great ups and downs. The volatility is enormous. So it looks a lot like a commodity. Gary Gensler, who's the head of the comes from a commodities futures trading commission. It looks like he wants that to be maybe jointly regulated. But the bottom line is you're going to buy this stuff buyer beware. We've been talking about that since 2009, and it's as true as ever. That is the voice of Jill Schlesinger. She is CBS News business analyst, a good friend of mine. Her two shows, Jill on Money, I on Money. What's the name of the book and when does it come out? The Great Money Reset, January of 2023. Don't worry, I'll be here plugging it very soon. You most certainly will. You most certainly will. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Hope you found it useful. For those watching on CBS News Streaming, and of course, our earliest and most beloved adopters on podcast platforms, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We will see you and speak with you, and I hope inform you again next week. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I am, of course, Major Garrett. I'm here every single week. Our guest this week, Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, host of Jill on Money and I on Money. Jill, I love to talk to you about lots of things, economics, but one of the things I love most to talk to you about is what things, and I know, I think you wrote a book about this. I'm, I'm almost sure of it. You'll tell me if I'm wrong. What Smart people do with dumb decisions smart people make about my some variation of yes. that theme, right? Yes, let me do it for you. You ready? Think. The yes. dumb things smart people do with their money. Right. Okay. What are what are a couple of those things and what are there what are there things right now you're afraid that they might be doing even if you're a smart person in this environment? First of all, every smart person makes dumb financial decisions and be, it's obvious why, because money is emotional, right? Um, so we talked about one of the big problems that we see, and that is that people react emotionally to moves in the markets. They really do. Mm-hmm. But there's also another part of this that can be really tough for me as someone who used to give advice for a living and even who hears from people. And that is that we go through a lot of experiences in our lives and sometimes we don't like to confront the hard stuff. So my pet peeve is that two and a half years into a pandemic, 
that I am still begging people to get their estate documents in, in the order that I am. I am shocked. You know, some I used to say like, well, you know, I never know when I'm going to cross the street and get hit by the M57 walking into the broadcast center at CBS. Unfit. You never know that. Right. Now I can say you never know. You could get a really scary virus and bad stuff happens. Right. So I think that's one of the things that continues to confound me is that we we are so much afraid sometimes of mm-hmm. dealing with these difficult issues that we just don't. And, and this not- is a bat this is a basket of documents. It's not just a will, correct? Correct. And and the, your three biggies would be a will, a durable power of attorney, and a healthcare proxy. And that healthcare proxy is the one that I really focus on because you know what? During the pandemic, we were telling people to tell your mom in the nursing home to tape her health care proxy on the outside of her door, because if God forbid she has to go to the hospital, they need to know who to call or they need to know what her wishes are. So these are the kinds of things that we want people to deal with. And I would say that the other thing that I think I hope we learned coming out of the pandemic that maybe we maybe have a better sense of right now has to do with education. And we were talking about, you know, there is so much education debt out there. I am still mystified by families that in, that put themselves, they impoverish themselves for this thing called a college degree, which may or may not pay off. So we really need to have honest conversations about what families can afford to do without putting anyone behind the financial eight ball. Are you in favor of, are you an advocate of 529B accounts as a means by which to finance that college education? If you have your big three areas of your financial life taken care of, if you've got an emergency reserve fund of six to 12 months of your living expenses, if you've gotten rid of high interest debt, and if you're maxing out your own retirement plan and you say, how shall I save for college? A 529 plan is really the best way. And it can be used for private high school also. Now, Again, those three things that I mentioned, those come first. You know, your kid has a lot of opportunities for choices when it comes to schools. There are state schools. There are certificate programs. Maybe not everybody needs to go to college. There's a lot of choices. You get to your retirement and you come up short. You don't have a lot of choices. So you don't want to have to say to your kids, I hope you loved that four-year party. I need your help now because I don't have enough money for retirement. And don't forget this, ladies and gentlemen, uh, not every child who is of college age, A, needs to go to a four-year college, and even those who do, don't necessarily need to spend all four years at the same college. Junior college is an enormously economical, useful way to A, prepare for a four-year college, do two years of it at much lower cost, and guess what? When you get that degree from that four-year college, nobody cares that you spent two years at a JUCO. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I'd be careful about is graduate schools. I have to be honest with you. Like, uh, I'm not saying this as somebody who's probably the only person, you know, major who doesn't have a graduate degree, which I don't. I don't either. Okay. I don't either. We're not. We're, we're in good company. But, you know, graduate schools really put people in huge debt. 
And um, unless you're going into a profession where you really have to get that graduate degree, I'd think long and hard about it and go to work and see if an organization will pay for you. Go and see if there is a certificate program. I have a nephew who got a certificate program in program in in, uh, computer software programming, and he came out with an enormous job offer. And I think that that was a much more efficient way to get the skills he needed rather than I'm going to go back and go get a master's in this, that, and the other thing. So explore your options. I think that there's a lot out there. Um, And most importantly, you know, try to take a deep breath and say, what am I trying to accomplish here? Am I going to, am I going to come out of this with something that's really going to change my life? Or am I doing this because I don't know what the hell else to do? A word to the wise folks. And when thinking about graduate school and the word is this, it's a phrase, don't go to graduate school to find yourself, go to graduate school to define yourself. I like that. I like that, man. You know what? You got you turn a phrase. You ought to consider a career in journalism. You know that? I'm thinking about it, Jill. Jill Schlesinger has been our special guest. That's our takeout. I'll take a special for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.